So we are coming to the conclusion of Joe Alsip's preliminary hearing, and it is the spring, it's May of 1982, almost to the day, which is interesting since it's um, early May now. And here's the headline. Alsip is ordered to stand trial. Holy smokes. We all know now he's completely innocent. This is why innocent projects, innocence projects matter. But let's find out why. Judge Clark, evidence warrants trial May 8th, 1982 by Greg Zoroya. Joseph Alsip was ordered Friday to stand trial for murder in the 1980 bludgeoning slayings of Lyman and Charlene Smith. Judge Clark, while cautioning the prosecution to review its case before proceeding, said he had a strong suspicion Alsip murdered his former business associate and Mrs. Smith. Alsip's arraignment for Superior Court was scheduled for May 21. Clark's decision late Friday afternoon concluded 13 days of proceedings in what may be the longest preliminary hearing in the county's history. (laughs) They haven't seen what's going to happen with D'Angelo. Afterward, Deputy District Attorney Pete Casores, the prosecutor, said, We're going to carefully consider and evaluate the case just like the judge told us. I would not expect that we would announce any decision in the next few days. Clark's ruling came uh, Clark's really ruling really came as no surprise since the standard of proof at a preliminary hearing is merely a strong suspicion of guilt rather than the beyond a reasonable doubt requirement for conviction. But the judge, while admitting the evidence was not overwhelming, spent a long time outlining what he believed pointed towards Alsip's guilt. He commented particularly on the testimony of the Reverend Michael, associate pastor at the missionary church who testified that he was privy to alleged admissions by the defendant. Michael was the focal point of much of the hearing. He was a figure whose credibility was attacked at length by the defense, while he was supported faithfully by church members. Oh, Greg, I see what you did there. You said faithfully. That's cute. The issue of the minister's credibility became so prominent during the hearing that in his closing argument, Kosaurus chastised the defense, calling the attacks on Michael below the belt. Hanawat rose to his own defense. And then there was Dorothy Alsip, the defendant's mother, who said after the hearing Friday, everybody talks about the attacks that have been made on Don Michael. Nobody said anything about the attack that's been made on Joe Alsip. In deciding to hold Alsip to answer on the charges, Clark told him, surely the case against you is not overwhelming. I'm not sure that I can say at this time that I'm convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that you're guilty in the offense. The thrust of your defense has obviously been to discredit Mr. Michael, and to a certain extent, you've been quite successful in doing that. But Clark said the defense fell short of discrediting the minister's allegations that Alsip walked into his counseling office at the church on May 21, 1980, and admitted involvement in the slayings. Alsip said that he never made any admissions and never had a solo counseling session with the minister on that or any other date. Said Hannah Walt, what it amounts to is the judge is looking for an answer to show guilt. I think he's playing to the church members. Hannah Walt said previously that he put a complex he put on a complex defense case. It consumed nearly a week and half the testimony and concluded and, and half of the testimony and concluded with the defendant taking the stand in an effort to convince the district attorney to drop the case. District Attorney Michael Bradbury charged him with charged Alsip with two counts of first-degree murder and said that he would seek the death penalty if Alsip is convicted. The prosecution's case during the 
hearing rested primarily. I'm sorry, guys. The prosecution's case during the hearing rested primarily on Michael's testimony and the fact that Alsip's fingerprints were found on a goblet in the Smith's home. I am still trying to figure that out because I washed dishes. <sighs> And I know the goblet that we had, uh, Charlene had these very, very ornate, heavy green glasses, very 1970s green, which is kind of an avocado hue. And um, and I just don't remember, I don't remember um, what if I washed a glass like that. It seems like I would have, though, because it would have been there on the sink. Also, it just doesn't make sense that his fingerprints would be on something that Charlene, she always cleaned up at night. And if there was anything at all she would have clubbed up in the morning so it's crazy okay clark said he found the fingerprint evidence significant he rejected the defense explanation that the prints could have been left at the residence the night before when Alsip said he dropped in on the smiths to talk for a short while regarding michael's testimony clark said hannawell has undermined the minister's credibility by showing inconsistencies in his testimony about having taken notes on May 21st in the May 21st counseling session. Clark said he was also impressed by the way Michael was impeached more than a week ago when the 59-year-old minister may have lied on the stand about where he had kept the notes. Michael disagreed with his church associates concerning the place where the notes were kept. But the judge said the minister's crucial testimony was corroborated in two ways. One, by the defendant's own testimony on cross-examination on Friday. It struck me in the last half hour as being extremely important. Something you testified to today, Clark said. You were asked something about your feelings of Lyman Smith. Clark was referring to a portion of Kosoris' questioning when the prosecutor asked Alsip if he had ever said any of the things Michael accused him of saying during the counseling session. Among those things was a comment attributed to Alsip that referred to the power Smith held over people. Alsip testified, I have stated that Mr. Smith, he was a very powerful person to be around. I mean, his personality was overwhelming. Said Clark, it was what you thought about Lyman or how you would characterize Lyman Smith, and you testified spontaneously, and I believe without giving it a great deal of thought as to how it would fit in with the rest of the testimony that Lyman Smith was a powerful personality. He added, that's a rather unique description of Lyman Smith. Because of Mr. Michael's tape recording of the recollections of his conversations with you, he stated that Alsip continued to say that he, Smith, would use his power over people and you become helpless. It would have been difficult for Mr. Michael to have made that up, Clark said. But he also found it significant that Alsip's wife, Mary, was not called to testify by the defense and corroborate certain crucial details. Mrs. Alsip did not attend any portion of the preliminary hearing, and her husband testified Friday that he had not seen her in weeks. He said he thought she was visiting family in Hawaii. Wow, he thought. <sighs> I guess he's in prison. What does he know? Or in jail. Clark said he considered Alsip's casual manner of explaining the absence of his wife as incriminating. Clark also said he did not, boy, by the way, welcome to the 80s, because where your spouse is supposed to be, you wonder why when these people, these these guys get up and confess to stuff and their wife is standing there. Look at the expectation there. This guy's actually, the judge is actually using the absence of the wife as incriminating. Okay. Former Sheriff's Deputy, uh, Deputy Rick Atwood testified last week that he had met with Mrs. Smith the afternoon of her death and they had had an affair. Clark said that Atwood, who was a chief suspect in the case at one time, seemed evasive during his questioning on the stand and he did not think Atwood was being honest. 
During his closing argument Friday, Casores discussed the theory about the murders. It seems to me much more logical than and convincing that, first of all, the murder was planned. Okay, this is interesting because now we know who the real guy is, right? It seems to me much more logical and convincing that, first of all, the murder was planned. Well, we know that's true. Secondly, that at least two people were involved. Mm, not true. Because if you're going to murder two people in their own home and you really don't know how they're going to um, they're going to react, whether you're going to catch them off guard or not, it seems to me you would not want to do it by yourself. Huh, unless you're a diabolical serial killer who's done this so many times, you know exactly what to do and how to scare the crap out of people and how to tie them up. All right, let me finish this last paragraph. After the hearing, he commented that if authorities get a lead on another suspect in the case, they will follow it up. He added, however, that the trail is pretty cold after two years. Okay, as you might imagine, we talked about letters to the editor. There are some letters to the editor. It is May 9th, and here we go. Coverage criticized is what the heading is here. Editor, Starfree Press. The editorial policy of the reporters covering the ALSIP trial is the type I would expect to find in the National Enquirer. Defense attorney Richard Hanawalt's treatment of the Reverend Don Michael indicates that he believes the end justifies the means, even if that requires the destruction of an innocent person. That attitude, however, should not be reflected in reporting of the trial of your paper. The bias of your reporters in favor of Mr. Alsip is quite obvious. I wonder how many of your newspaper staff buy the attitude of Richard Hanawalt that anything goes as long as Mr. Alsip is judged guilty, is not judged guilty. I believe I am in a position to know more about Don Michael's moral and mental integrity than any of his current critics. I have been his personal physician physician for the past five years. It is my opinion that he is telling the truth. Dr. William Lehman of Santa Paula. Wow, when your doctor comes to bat for you in the paper. Here we go. Here's another one. Editor, Starfree Press. Regarding May 3rd article, subpoena of minister leads to confrontation. After reading Greg Zoria's story, I noted that pastors DeWitt and Miller stated that the truth as they saw it, they were at the scene. Attorney Richard Hanawalt apparently was not. If that was the case, why did Zoria allow Hanawalt to tell him what happened? I was also confused about why Hanawalt sent women and children to subpoena the pastor. Why didn't he go himself? Okay, by the way, that's just not what happens, but okay. I was at Ventura Missionary Church on the Sunday that the confrontation supposedly occurred. I saw Pastor Michael greeting people as usual. I saw Pastor DeWitt doing the same. No one was hiding from Hannah Walter's friends, yet Hannah friends had much difficulty getting a subpoena to DeWitt, although there were plenty of opportunity to do so while DeWitt was greeting the congregation at the close of the service. Something's really fishy about Hanawalt always being the main news source about Hanawalt speaking for other people and prejudging motives. Sarah Emmons of Ventura. And the last one, editor Starfree Press. Subpoena of minister leads to confrontation was a poor choice of headline, unless, of course, it was deliberate. Reverend DeWitt and his flock were put in a bad light when actually the truth is, if the writer had his facts right, was attorney secretary uses child to stop minister's car. What kind of a mother uses her child to help serve a subpoena? A well And a well-trained child at that. How many times has this mother done this? this? Isn't this an infraction of child labor laws? That is from Alfred Engel of Ventura. And then there is one more. Um, I have 
uh, May 11 on this one, but here we go. It might be just a second letter. A second, yeah. Coverage protested. Editor of the Star Free Press regarding the press coverage of Joseph Alsip Jr. preliminary court hearing. Having been in law enforcement 12 years prior to 1969, I have been in courtrooms many times, listened to many cross-examinations by attorneys, and observed the various ruses and techniques they use to make their points to a judge or jury. But I have never witnessed a more vicious personal attack, attack than defense attorney Richard Hanawalt has launched against Pastor Don Michael in this hearing. I assure you, I totally agree with the premise that every defendant should have the best possible defense and every legal means and every legal means to get all the pertinent facts before the court should be exercised. However, it is totally obvious, even to a casual observer, that Mr. Hanawalt, with his tactics, is attempting to shift the public attention from his client to Pastor Michael. At this point, I wish to raise in protest that the Starfree Press, in order to give the appearance of having inside information, is giving multiple column space to Mr. Hanawalt's verbatim comments made outside the courtroom about the questioning of the witnesses, about what he thinks is true, what he hopes to prove, etc. Most of the printed statements in this paper is material the judge would not allow in court because they were opinions, conjecture, circumstantial, circ circumstantial or all of these. Hooray for the judge, yet... The Star Free Press apparently feels no restrictions and is printing a totally one-sided version, which of course is juicier than just plain facts. What Mr. Hanawalt is doing goes beyond what most attorneys would consider a good, strong defense of a defendant. But the Star compounds this wrong by giving Mr. Hanawalt the public forum to conduct his ad hoc trial of Pastor Michael. Long after the trial is over, the defendant found in innocent or guilty, Pastor Michael and his family will have to stand the emotional scars from it. And his friends, of which I am proud to be one, and all of his right-thinking citizens, and all right-thinking citizens, will not forget what occurred. Character assassination by the manipulation of the press will not be tolerated. Alan Schwartz Ventura. So, I have a little scoop on this, but I can't tell you yet. So just... Keep going, because it's interesting how things are stacking up. Now it's May 13th. DA now faces decision on whether to prosecute ALSIP. Deptic, this is Greg Zoria again. So May 13th, uh, those letters were from the weekend, probably. So yeah, we're into the week now. Dep Deputy District Attorney Pete Casores has completed a 50-page review of the Joseph ALSIP murder case that contains his recommendations on whether to continue, he said Wednesday. That report will by either the end of this week or early next week, be in the hands of Casoris' supervisors, including District Attorney Michael Bradbury, who must ultimately decide whether to prosecute Alsip for the 1980 murders of Ventura Attorney Lyman and Charlene Smith. So this is important because we bring this up all the time with D'Angelo. These district attorneys, the elected officials, are the ones that make these key decisions. So you have paid staff, Pete Casoris being uh, salaried, just like right now, Cheryl Temple out of Ventura is my prosecutor for Ventura, our prosecutor. So at this point, it is Michael Bradbury who has to decide whether to go forward. And of course, that's based on what he looks at from Casoris, what Casoris has put together. Uh, let's see. Casoris would not say what he's recommending in the controversial case. A municipal court judge has urged the district attorney's office to carefully review its case before proceeding. Alsip was ordered to stay on trial last week after a 13-day preliminary hearing before Judge Clark, during which the defense attorney, Hannah Walt, put on an ex 
extensive defense case in an effort to discourage the prosecutor's office from taking the case to trial. Clark cited several elements that said he convinced him there was a strong suspicion Alsip was responsible, but he said the defense had impeached, to a certain extent, the testimony of a key prosecution witness, the Reverend Donald Michael. The minister testified that he was privy to some admissions. Kasorisi spent most of the early time of the week preparing the memorandum that includes 100 pages of exhibits. In addition to his recommendations, Kasoris has included his analysis of a list of strengths and weaknesses of the prosecutor's case. Kasoris is taking today and Friday off. Take tea today and Friday this week off. Bradbury and other high-ranking officials in the DA's office are expected to complete the review of the memorandum early next week and make a decision on whether to proceed. The decision should come before Alsip's scheduled arraignment on Superior Court on May 21. Okay, so May 13. Now we go to May 18. DA ready to reveal Alsip decision. District Attorney Michael Bradbury was to announce this afternoon whether his office will continue to prosecute Joseph Alsip. Bradbury scheduled a 4 p.m. press conference to announce his decision. He is charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Uh, district, uh, let's see. Okay, that's all it is. They're just saying he's ready to, again, sorry, guys. This is like newspaper, right? So they print this stuff so you know it's coming, but it's going to come out um, that day at 4 o'clock. So that means it wasn't going to, it's interesting that Bradbury is picking 4 o'clock because it means it would not make the afternoon edition of the paper, which used to be another tactic that um, anybody who wanted to use the press could use. As you would, It's just like now today, they, when you break news on a Friday, it's because you don't want people to hear about it because nobody listens to the news starting on a Friday and generally not again until maybe Sunday morning if you listen to, to political talk shows and stuff. But that's how you play the news cycle. Well, it's interesting here that this um, press conference was scheduled for 4, 4 p.m. Interestingly enough, there's a letter to the, one more letter to the editor. Um, so here we go. Editor of the Star Free Press. Coverage protested. Um, oh, it's regarding Alan's, uh, the letter I just read you from Alan Schwartz, the former law enforcement person on the coverage protested. I find Mr. Schwartz attacks against defense attorney Hannah Waltz Manor in a courtroom proceeding to be very negative and very biased. Also having witnessed the hearings in the Smith case, I find that Mr. Hannah Walt wasn't launching an attack or shifting the attention from Mr. Alsip to Reverend Michael. Mr. Hanawalt has done a very good job of trying to establish facts from fantasy concerning the case. Some of Reverend Michael's stories regarding his past I find not only fascinating, but very hard to believe. I also find Mr. Schwartz's protest of the Sarpy Press as having given Mr. Hanawalt multiple column space to be misleading. Mr. Hanawalt was only commenting on what he thinks is true. And this is from Harry Hamilton of Ventura. If you don't know what column space is, that's inches in a paper. So if you aren't a newspaper person and never read a newspaper, you would judge your popularity by how many inches of column space you would get. If you were the reporter, you would judge your success by how many inches of column space you would get. It's literally columns of the newspaper. Okay, so should we see what um, District Attorney Bradbury decided? Here's the headline on May 19th, and this is a big headline, guys. Alsip goes free. District Attorney Michael Bradbury Tuesday decided against prose- prosecuting Joseph Alsip for the murders of Lyman and Charlene Smith. Bradbury said he had a strong suspicion that the real estate developed murdered or even took part in the murder 
but he said he did not believe the case was strong enough to take to trial, particularly since the testimony of a key prosecution witness, the Reverend Donald Michael, had been seriously impeached during a preliminary hearing that ended May 7th. Michael had testified about some alleged admissions Alsip made to him during a counseling session. Had the Reverend Michael testified without the impeachment that, that occurred, we believe we could have proceeded to trial, said Bradbury. I think my responsibilities are clear. Under the circumstances, it would be improper for me to prosecute at this time. This is also um, the photograph of Joe drinking champagne out of the rooftop of a limousine. The subhead is DA decides Smith murder case not strong enough to take to trial. So just checking. Yes, here we go. The DA decides, so this is now the inside spread. DA decides not to prosecute. Al Sip, who had been facing the two counts of murder, um, walked out of county jail in Ventura around 5.30 p.m. Tuesday on his 189th day in jail. He was ecstatic when greeted by a handful of supporters and his defense attorney, Richard Hanawal, after his release. But the Ventura resident reflected on his long time in custody and described it of six months of your life shot and it's six months of your life you can't get back. No, I don't feel bitter, said Alsip, because they did what was a good what good police officers would do. They just didn't look into Michael's credibility far enough. They had no reason but to believe he was an outstanding witness. They just should have looked a little deeper and they would have found the truth, Alsip said. He even had some kind words for Michael, whose testimony was the biggest hurdle for the defense to overcome. Mr. Michael, I feel extremely sorry for, and I hope the Lord will do... Okay, that's literally what it says. Mr. Michael, I feel extremely sorry for, and I hope the Lord will do everything he can for Mr. Michael, said Alsip, who explained that his own religious experience has grown during his time in custody. Though Alsip has been freed from jail and the immediate prospect of a murder trial, he has not escaped the suspicion of authorities. Bradbury explained that his decision to drop the case against Alsip leaves him with the option to file murder charges a second time should additional evidence be discovered. If Alsip had gone to trial and been acquitted, charges could not have been refiled. It's a frustrating feeling just to have it sort of left dangling, said District Attorney Pete Casoris, Deputy District Attorney Pete Casoris, who prosecuted Alsip. He prepared a 50-page review of the case last week and was among the senior officials in Bradbury's office who ultimately recommended that the case be dropped. I think Alsip probably did it, but I'm not sure, said Casoris. I'm not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. I certainly think it would be unthinkable to send him into the gas chamber under this evidence. Of course, said the defense attorney, Hannah Walt, this comes as, del as a delightful surprise. The cloud of suspicion remains, he said, but on balance, that's one of the facts of life. You take your thorns right along with the rose petals. The difficulty for prosecutors at this point is proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury. A lesser standard of proof, known as a strong suspicion of guilt, was all that was required to hold Alsip to answer for the crimes after a 13-day preliminary hearing. We agree with the preliminary hearing magistrate's decision that there's a probable cause of Mr. Alsip's guilt, said Bradbury, but that decision does not answer the additional questions. Does the evidence justify prosecution? Does it entitle the prosecutor to ethically urge that guilt beyond a reasonable doubt has been shown? Bradbury pointed out weaknesses in a few important areas. There were Alsip's fingerprints at the scene, but evidence that he had visited the Smiths the night before. There were indications of Alsip's hostility towards Smith concerning business deals, but the development company the two men had shared broke up three months before the murder. 
There was an alleged jailhouse confession, but the cellmate's testimony was contradicted and undermined. Even despite those problems, Bradbury said the case could have continued, but for problems with the minister's testimony. The 59-year-old associate pastor of the missionary church testified that Alsip came in to him and made admissions about participating in the crime. That was in March, uh, it was March 16, 1980, when the bottom bodies of Smith were found in their home. Both had been beaten to death, heads crushed by a founder lock, fire log found on the bed where their bodies were discovered. Police learned about the alleged admissions made to Michael as a suspect within the next several months, but it would never. It would be more than a year after the slayings before Michael would go on the record about his conversation with Alsip. That did not occur until Alsip signed a waiver allowing officers to talk to Michael. He later tried to withdraw the waiver. Even after officers had Michael on record, it was not until late 81 that Bradbury filed murder charges and arrested Alsip. For the next several weeks, the case bogged down as Alsip tried to work out financial arrangements with possible defense attorneys. He was arraigned on December 23rd and pled innocent. Hanawalt took the case in January. Further delays put the preliminary hearing off until April 21. God, does this sound like our case now or what? Without all the drama. During one of the longest such hearings in county history, dozens of witnesses were called. Hanawalt said his plan, short of preventing Alsip from being held to answer, was to convince Bradbury to drop the case. He focused much of his energy on discrediting the testimony and undermining the credibility of Michael. This was the type of case in which I made a lot of moves that would be branded incompetence if I had missed the boat. It appears that I played my cards the right way, said Hanawalt on Tuesday. One of his most impressive assaults came when he called Michael's former associate, now an Oxnard family therapist, who testified that in cases where there would be an ounce of drama or intrigue or excitement, Don, I believe, would have a tendency of adding two and two and getting seven. Bradbury listed his concerns about Michael's credibility, concerns that surfaced either during cross-examination by Hanawalt or because of information submitted during the hearing. Michael admitted that part of his own testimony was false. He gave inconsistent accounts of his May 22nd notes pertaining to the crucial Alsip interview and when he wrote, where, when he wrote them, where he kept them, and where the circumstances and what were the circumstances of his writing them, said Bradbury. On several collateral matters, for example, threats against him, he gave inconsistent accounts. It was not corroborated or was credibly contradicted. Many significant statements attributed to Mr. Elsip by Reverend Michael are not mentioned or in any way referred to in Michael's notes, Bradbury said. We're almost done. Um, there's a picture now of Joe, and it says, I've, um, I've got the mental attitude and ability to continue. I'm still young, and I've got my mind. I'm going to be a better person because of it. That's, what, that's a quote from Joe, and it's his picture. Although the substantial impeachment of the Reverend Michael's testimony does not undermine his essential truthfulness, that Mr. Alsip did make statements to him, and that some of those statements referred to the deaths of Lyman and Charlene, it does raise reasonable doubts of such significance that further prosecution at this time is not justified, Bradbury said. I think Michael came forward as a public service at a cost of suffering considerable personal trauma, more than he possibly realized, said Casaurus. I hope it doesn't have any harmful effect. Reflecting on the minister's testimony Tuesday, Alsip thinks he, Michael merely expanded on certain things that Alsip had told him. The defense has contended that the alleged meeting of May in May of 1980 never took place.
But there was a meeting in April of that year when Alsip and his wife came to the Ventura Missionary Church to meet with the minister. For a brief time, Alsip spoke with the minister alone. I told He told him about his personal frustrations, an affair he was having, and his knowledge that he was a suspect in Smith murders. Alsip said Tuesday that Michael probably just embellished those facts, misunderstood certain areas, and thought he had a criminal admission. Tuesday evening, a Robin's Egg Blue stretch limousine was hired to take Alsip from his attorney's Ventura office to an expensive Oxnard restaurant where some 15 reservations had been made for a celebration dinner. Before the car arrived, Alsip casually talked with reporters about his six months in jail, where he'd become somewhat of a celebrity among the inmates. He described the overcrowded conditions where two inmates were frequently placed in one man's cell and how one time someone tried to commit suicide in his jail section. But in general, Alsip said he got along with his fellow inmates, many of whom would recognize him and stop to talk. And Alsip was complimentary of his jailers and had no serious complaints about the conditions. Married and the father of a boy and a girl, Alsip said that the entire experience has affected me financially. Yes, I don't have anything. I have a car and what's left of my household. But, said Alsip, I've got the mental attitude and ability to continue. I'm still young and I've got my mind and I'm going to become a better person because of it. His fear is that since he is still under suspicion, it will be difficult to continue in his chosen field as a real estate developer. People aren't going to attempt to invest their hard-earned dollars with me like they did before, he said. The intense media and public attention focused on this case was no surprise. I really didn't really enjoy the attention, he said, but then he paused. You know, you always enjoy it a little bit. Hannah Walt hailed Bradbury's decision to drop the case as a victory for the preliminary hearing process. This clearly has saved the county in excess of eighty-five to $90,000, Hannah Walt said. Said Casaurus, I don't know whether we did him Alsip a terrible injustice or whether he's just a damn lucky guy and didn't get convicted. Okay, can I just say a couple things? First of all, Eighty-five to ninety thousand dollars, and we're looking like a twenty-one million dollar prize tag with D'Angelo. Of course, this is one jurisdiction. D'Angelo's six. This was two crimes. D'Angelo's is a gazillion, but it's interesting the relative value of money. Number two, I am in completely impressed that this district attorney um, decided not to proceed because it just speaks to in- his integrity. And his thoughtfulness and his understanding that, yeah, there really wasn't enough evidence to hold him over. I mean, we didn't have the benefit then of knowing what we know now, which is, of course, Joe is completely innocent. But it still took a lot of courage to be able to say, nope, we just do not have enough information. Not enough to convict beyond a reasonable doubt. And even mentions ethics. That is... That's hell of respectable, I've got to say. It's just incredibly respectable. So the last thing for this podcast is that on May 22nd, so this is after in the, Sartre Press used to have this super fun thing called Pa Ventura. I think it was the editorial board of the Starfree Press. They'd sit around and, um, you know, shoot the shit, as they say. And they would write out these little things and they were, it, it was on the opinion page and it would say to someone, like, Two go- here's a couple examples. Two golfers. Jack Nicholas's victory in the col- in the Colonial Golf Tourney was most welcome to all of us over forty types. Two sexists. When Playboy names its Playmate of the Year, she gets a hundred thousand dollars in the key to a Porsche. Um, 
Cosmo's sexiest man gets $1,000. Obviously, equality hasn't caught up with the skin pick trade. Okay, y'all have to bite me on that one. Here's another one. Let's give you this one. Two Republicans. How many gold waters does it take to win a U.S. Senate primary? Two. A father who runs the campaign and a son who gets the votes. How many Reagans does it take to lose a U.S. Senate primary? Two. A father who runs the campaign and a daughter who gets his goat. Ooh, that's what you call a burn. Well, there's one in here. Two attorneys. Who needs Melvin Belli and Effley Bailey when we've got Dick Hanawalt? Those are the two names we compare him to, Belli and Bailey. And if you don't know those two, Belli out of San Francisco and Effley Bailey out of I don't know where, you need to go do your historical research on colorful lawyers. Maybe there's a podcast right there about colorful lawyers. So with that, we conclude what happened with Joe Alsip. But as any good story, there is an epilogue, and it's not Joseph D'Angelo. It is still all the way back in 1982. It is the epilogue, and you deserve to hear it. And I'll be back with that in the last podcast on these old in-the-news stories. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the feedback. And I will talk to you guys next time. Early train.